0: British royal family. Apparently, during that interview, Oprah made reference to them speaking their truth. Dr. Moeller commented that Oprah has essentially become the great living prophetess of truth. She's championed this idea for a number of years now. He then cited in 2018 her Golden Globes acceptance speech when she said, quote, What I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most important tool we have. That sentiment so beautifully captures the overarching heartbeat of the world's thinking today. Your truth reigns. Whatever your truth is should be boldly, proudly stated for the world around you to see, hear, acquiesce to, and celebrate with you. Never mind the fact that for millennia now, the word truth, and more importantly, the definition of the term truth, has never needed such a qualifier. It would have been incomprehensible years ago to make reference to truth as something that I alone possess and define. Truth is inherently something external to me. It ought to be external to all of us and something by which we can all collectively measure all other things. Now, perhaps when people use the term your truth, they don't always mean to completely redefine the idea of truth. Perhaps they see there's a spectrum. Moeller also cited another article in which a person defined truth as, quote, authenticity, who you are being your full self. That person went on to say that you can't verify someone's truth, you can't verify someone's journey, and it shouldn't have to be verified, it's theirs. In this sense, your truth is meant to refer to a person's individual life experience and their concept of reality. It's an interesting sentiment, but again, it undermines and subverts the essential nature of truth. So, whether you're attempting to completely redefine the idea of truth, which I believe is probably the way most people understand the term, your truth, or you're simply one who is trying to refer to your own personal journey or experience, the idea of your truth is really quite absurd. Again, it sounds nice in theory. It sounds as if we're giving people more freedom to express themselves, their journey, but no one really lives that way in their everyday life. The notion that we can all have our own personal truths just doesn't really work in reality. I mean, who drives down the road, gets pulled over for a speeding ticket, and responds to the officer, Well, sir... It may be your truth that I was speeding, but my truth says I was driving the correct speed limit. And then the officer says, oh, yes, well, I understand. Well, that was your truth. Okay, you're fine. You can go ahead. It doesn't happen. Or I got this one from Dr. Moeller, who, when discussing the results of a CAT scan, will settle for the truth of some random person reading the results over the truth of someone who's actually verified, been verified in the realm of academics, tested, tried, and has been doing so for years. If neither of those do it for you, who would dare enter an airplane with someone whose truth is that they're a pilot when in reality they're not? <laughs> we don't do those things because we understand that truth is not a matter of my truth versus your truth. Truth is external to us. Truth is something that we should be should be able to be viewed and taken as a standard, a norm by everyone. When we move away from that as a society, we subvert the essential nature of truth. We start down a road of absurdity, a road in which anything goes, anything can happen, and really nothing matters if there's no truth, no standard. It's a road from which return is doubtful and at the end of which catastrophe is certain. Now, while it's easy to see the precarious grip that our society has on reality as it undermines the nature of truth, It's also true that we all, in our own ways, subvert the nature of truth in favor of our own version. We are so enamored with our concept of our truth, our journey, our experiences, our conception of the world, that we, just like the world, often attempt to press our truth in the hearts and minds of others. Pastor Chris mentioned last week how we often become so dependent on the likes that we receive on social media, right? We've also come to have this insatiable desire, need to tell our story, our truth. We wake up in the morning, we post, I just woke up. <laughs> we stub our toe on the way to the bathroom, we grumble about stubbing our toe on the way to the bathroom. We eat a winning breakfast, what do we do? We snap a picture of it. I just had this for breakfast. We get kudos at work for a good job, or someone cuts us off on the way home from work, and we post about it on social media. We make political posts, Posts about our favorite sports team, Posts about our children, Host about how we spend holidays. We're so enamored with ourselves and our way of looking at the world that we can't wait to tell everyone else about it. And again, we expect for others to hear our truth, acquiesce to our truth, champion our truth, embrace our truth. We in the church are no different, and particularly are guilty of this of championing our truth in matters of little consequence. Again, from social media posts to arguments about the color of carpet during members' meetings, even as far as whole denominations that have been established to give people the luxury of expressing their understanding of an issue on Christian liberty. Well, again, we're continuing to develop our series on a biblical worldview. This morning, we're going to consider that the idea of Christian liberty. Typically, when we speak of the idea of liberty, we're talking about that realm of Christian life where there are not explicit commands to govern one's actions. We know, for example, that lying is biblically wrong. It is sin. We're specifically commanded not to lie. But what about dancing? Uh, Not too many years ago, a significant majority of Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in our society would have shunned dancing in various forms as inherently sinful. And yet there's no prohibition for dancing. We're, in fact, encouraged to dance in Scripture. And we have examples of people who dance in Scripture, and we're not uh, chided for it. For some, that solves the issue. That answers the question. But biblically, the discussion about our liberties in Christ, what we're free to do goes much further than what is right and wrong, what is permissible and impermissible. Again, there often isn't a clear, specific biblical truth that solves a problem. The real question of Christian liberty has to do with when it is right to exercise that liberty. When am I free to exercise my freedoms? When should I refrain from exercising my freedoms? How does my relationship with my brothers and sisters and with the world impact my exercise of my freedoms in Christ? Our passage of study is Romans chapter 14. Um, we're going to go from 14 into 15, verse 6, and probably verse 7. We'll touch on a bit. We're not going to go verse by verse as we typically do, or we'd still be here by the time Pastor Chris opens up uh, next Sunday. But uh, this section does give us a number of principles to help us to think through these issues. Again, the whole world system, particularly today, is screaming for us to live out our truth, speak our own truth, champion our own truth, share our own truth so that others will join in and embrace it with us. Yet scripture gives us a high, higher calling. Pursue God's truth. And in those areas where God's truth is silent, be okay with other people disagreeing with you. And use your liberty not to create division as you pursue your own purposes, but rather to build up your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I believe that's the basic truth that we're taught in this passage. To put it in other words, our desire ought to be so focused on loving one another that our liberties, our preferences are willingly set aside to foster unity in the body. We've said that biblical worldview, again, seeks to glorify, magnify Jesus above all other things. In this way, we seek to magnify and glorify Jesus by building up his church above our pursuits. Let's look at the passage together and then we'll pray and get into it. Romans chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while while the weak person eats only vegetables. That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts and is con But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Seven more verses here. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Our Father, again, we thank you for today. Thank you for your word, which is true. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This passage is very simply put together. It comes off the heels of chapter 12, verse 1. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Prove what the will of God is, Paul says there. Well, how do we do that? In a number of ways, as Paul continues through the rest of the letter, the controlling theme in this section, chapter 14 through 15, 7, is being welcoming of one another. Paul says this in chapter 14, verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And again, at the end of the section, 15, 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He's concerned that we welcome one another, that we be welcoming to one another. That there be no one in the body who feels unwelcome at any time for any reason. We ought to embrace one another, not offend one another. We ought to cling to one another, not run from one another. We ought to feel like a body who has members, each of whose member feels valued, cared for, and wanted. That's simply a matter of loving one another. Throughout this section, there are three principles that Paul provides for us to ensure that as we exercise our liberties, as we continue to seek that we continue to seek that each person is welcomed in the body. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, we'll see that we ought to acknowledge that we may have differences opinions as servants of the Lord. In chapter chapter 14, verses 13 through 23, we're encouraged to be a person of conviction, but to be a person of conviction for the purpose of edifying others. And third, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, we are to be obliged to please one another. To feel obligated to please one another and not just ourselves. Let's look at that first principle again. As we exercise our liberty and seek to maintain love, we must acknowledge that we may have differences opinions as servants of the Lord. It's okay to disagree. Again, I'm going to focus in on that first section in chapter 14 verses 1 through 12. I won't read it again since we just read through that whole section. But look back again at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. This verse is a good summary verse for the section. Again, we are to welcome one another. We are to be welcoming. We're to be welcoming even to the one who is weak in faith. This idea of being weak in faith does not mean that some people are more spiritual than others. That's not the idea there. The faith is not in question here. All are equally saved. All equally possess the Holy Spirit. All are equally beloved in God's eyes. No one is being demeaned by this designation. The idea of being weak in faith here is in the context of those opinion matters. These are not settled doctrinal truths, right? So in that sense, it really doesn't matter. It's not that significant. One person's view, the one who is strong in faith, as opposed to another person's view, the one who is weak in faith, doesn't make one better and the other less. Because these are matters of opinion, not settled truths, it's okay for us to disagree. We are to welcome one another. The point of our being welcoming, the motive of our welcoming, the result of our welcoming ought not to be for the purpose of quarreling, Paul says. Because again, in the big scheme of things, these opinion matters are not really that significant. It's not settled doctrinal truth. Now, this distinction that Paul makes here is not insignificant in the flow of the argument, he uses it to bring out the underlying tension between these two groups. He explains a bit further as he goes throughout the rest of the text, looking in at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. There are a couple of different illustrations that he's using in the rest of this section here. And this is the first one, that of eating and drinking. In this illustration, which may have been an actual matter of conflict or, again, simply being used as an illustration, on the one hand, some people believe that anything is permissible to eat. On the other hand, there are those who would place restrictions on what's being eaten. The simplest reference here would be to um, some of the Jewish believers in the congregation who would have continued to hold to the strict dietary requirements of the law, while the Gentile believers would have been more free or felt more free to eat whatever they wanted. That's really the more direct referent. In this case, it's likely that the group who believed that anything was permissible was looking down upon those who were weaker in faith, believing that they could eat only some things. This would have led to division within the body. To them, Paul says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, nor the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who does not eat. We are not to quarrel about opinions over what is permissible to eat. Do not despise one another, he says. That word means to show by one's attitude or manner of treatment that an entity has no merit or worth. To have no use for something as being beneath one's consideration or to regard another as insignificant and therefore worthy of maltreatment. That may seem pretty harsh, but when you think about it, it's really what we do. Often when someone disagrees with our opinion, we tend to look down upon them because we believe that our opinion is a superior one. We have it all together. We have all the facts. We know what we're talking about, right? Yes. You ever had that thought when someone disagreed with your opinion? What's wrong with them? How can they not see it? Am I the only one who sees this? I know I've had those thoughts before, if I were to be honest. Those times when someone disagrees with you and and you wonder what in the world's wrong with them, or maybe you're just not being convincing enough to help them to see your point. Paul says that's despising your brother, showing by your attitude that you believe their opinion to have no merit, that it is unworthy, beneath your consideration, insignificant. The problem is that the longer they disagree with you, ultimately you start to think that about the person as well. Do you struggle with despising your brother or sister? It certainly goes both ways, right? He says, don't despise the one who abstains, and you who abstain, don't despise the one who eats. Neither one is better. What does the Holy Spirit say? Again, back in our text, we ought not to despise one another because God has welcomed him. God has welcomed the believer, the one who believes with strong faith that he can eat, The one who believes with weak faith that he should not eat, both are welcomed by God. Thus, we ought to welcome one another. And that really should be enough for us. Even if they disagree with our opinion or our view, it should be enough that God has welcomed them. We have another example in verses 5 and 6. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. Similar scenario, there are differing opinions on the significance of holy days. Either way, they they both have faith. Either way, they're both believers. Either way, they're both accepted by God. In this illustration, Paul additionally po- points out that those who observe the holy day do so to honor the Lord. And those who don't observe the holy day do so to honor the Lord. And so it should be okay with us either way. In other words, we're all on the same team, right? Right? We're all pursuing the same goal, to honor the Lord. You do it this way, I do it that way. We can agree to disagree on the method, but that's still the goal. And so we should not get so bent out of shape when someone disagrees with us on matters of opinion. We do tend to get so bent out of shape again because we've convinced ourselves that our way is the right way and that we have to make sure that we express our way to everyone so that they they get it. But this other person, whoever they are, they're still serving the Lord. They're observing the holy day or whatever it might be in in order to honor the Lord. I must say here again that we're not talking about settled doctrinal truths. We're not talking about having opinions on matters of the faith that have been settled for millennia because these are explicitly stated in the word of God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus alone is a savior, right? Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. That's a settled doctrinal truth. We're not debating about that. We don't need to ask if Jesus is Lord, if we should be following Christ, if we should be praising Jesus, if we should be honoring him, if we should be preaching the gospel. We don't need to to have conversations about that or debates about that. There's no other way to know God's love. There's no other truth. There's no other life. Jesus said it that way himself. He said, I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, not a truth. I am the life, not a life. No one, Jesus said, comes to the Father but by me. No one. He's the only way. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. That's a settled gospel truth. Murder is murder. Lying is lying. Theft is theft. Idolatry is idolatry. Sex between two people who are not a man and woman who are married is always going to be some form of fornication. These are things the church has understood to be settled doctrines for millennia now. Scripture is clear on those things. We're not debating on those things. We're not talking about opinions on those things. In this passage, the Holy Spirit does not have those things in mind. Again, what he does have in mind are those opinion issues that we touched on briefly in verse 1. Those issues where Scripture does not give a clear command, and so we must use wisdom and principles that we draw from the Word of God to understand what to do. Drinking, for example. What is the command in Scripture with respect to drinking? It's about not being drunk, right? That's the prohibition. We're prohibited from not being drunk, so we may drink. Some people will drink, and some people won't. Those who drink do so because they know the Lord has prohibited them. To, they, the Lord has not prohibited them from doing so. Those who do not drink perhaps give consideration to other things. Perhaps drunkenness was a part of their past history, and they don't want to repeat it. Perhaps there they they were they're uncertain of the effects that it'll have on them. They've seen it in others. They'd rather avoid it. The fact is, there may be a number of reasons, including health concerns, as to why someone may choose not to drink. But they do so just as the one who drinks, trusting that the Lord has accepted them and that they're serving him in doing so, And whatever their decision is there. And those who drink should not despise those who do not, and vice versa. In our day, the issue of wearing a mask is a big deal. People are still talking about Some people were ready to discard the mask the day it was instituted. Others continue to wear the mask and don't see a reason to let up. Of course, there have been other considerations, such as the reality of the virus that has come fast and spread rapidly, deaths that resulted, mandate from our governing authorities. Now that the mandate has been lifted, we are free to either wear or not wear. Whether we wear or do not wear, we do so as unto the Lord. And those who do not wear a mask should not despise those who wear a mask and vice versa. We could talk about a number of other things, entertainment and movies, the kind of clothes you wear, how you handle wealth, homeschooling versus not homeschooling, whether women should work outside of the the home or not when they're married. These are all issues about which we may have multiple opinions. Regardless of what our opinions are, we ought to do them as unto the Lord. Look back at the text in verse 7. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We read in that passage in 1 Corinthians 10, do all things, what? For the glory of God, whatever you do. Whether we live or die, whether we drink or do not drink as we live or die, whether we mask or do not mask as we live or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. He cares for us. That's the big idea. That's the main point so it's okay. Not only that, but the reality is that we don't have to judge one another's choices or to examine one another's liberties because the Lord will do so. Again, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verses 9 through 12. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us, whether we have weak faith or strong faith in one area or another, will stand before God in judgment. Of course, this is not the final judgment for believers. There will be no ultimate condemnation before God in matters of opinion. But we will have to give an account of our opinions before the Lord, whether, again, we have weak faith or strong faith. We shall have to give an account for the reason why we chose not to do what we did. Again, there are some things in Scripture that are not explicitly clear. On the clear issues, we should judge one another. We should hold one another accountable to the standard of Scripture. That's something that we should do. If we don't do that, we're not being loving. It is unloving to let someone completely disregard the word of God and God's standard. But when we're not talking about something that's explicitly and clearly revealed in Scripture, then God gives us wisdom on those things. He gives us principles in his word. He gives us teachers. He gives us one another. He's given us the same Holy Spirit who he used to write Scripture. And so we do have freedom to make decisions, and thus we will give an account for those decisions, those choices, all of those choices, all of those opinions that we believe are so right, we will have to give an account for. And assuming we've made those decisions with the right motives, using godly wisdom, not human wisdom, the Lord will make us to stand, meaning in the judgment we'll pass the test. And also by implication, we'll have to give an account for how we've treated one another, whether we have to stand in judgment, whether we have, stu- whether we have stood in judgment of one another incorrectly. We have to be okay with having differing opinions on matters that are not settled by Scripture, and we must take care that we're not despising our brethren in the way that we respond when their opinions differ from ours. Again, contrary to the world, our goal is not to talk the loudest so that we can be heard and affirmed and and as right in all of our opinions. Our goal is to glorify Jesus Christ and to build up his church. So one might wonder, is it wrong to have my own differing opinions? Should I just chuck all of my thoughts up about the way things ought to be and never say anything? That leads us to our next principle. Be a person of conviction, but be a person of conviction for the purpose of edification. That's going to be in verses 13 through the end, verse 23 of chapter 14. Now there's a play on words in verse 13 that doesn't come out completely in the English He says there in verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. (laughs) He says something like this. Let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather judge that word for pass judgment and decide are actually the same word in the original. We're not to pass judgment on one another, but we are to pass judgment on ourselves. We are to think for ourselves. We are to to think Um, very particularly about the way we're acting toward one another. And what we ought to be thinking about is to make sure that we never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. In other words, don't sit in judgment of another's opinion, but rather judge not to be a stumbling block to your brother by your opinions. Again, it's okay to have opinions, to make judgments on issues that are not clearly settled in Scripture. Paul says in Verse 14, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus nothing is unclean in itself. Paul himself was a man of convictions. And if anyone had the right to have convictions and express those convictions and really expect other people to listen to those convictions, it would have been Paul, right? The Apostle Paul. If he has an opinion on something, you should probably listen to it. But even Paul himself having those convictions was not trying to convince other people just to follow his convictions just because he had those convictions on certain things for him any meat was permissible but for others it was clearly impermissible which one is right neither what is right in this case is for those who are convinced that they can go on being those who are convinced that they can eat should go on being convinced that they can they should eat and those who are convinced they should not eat to go on being convinced they should not eat <clears throat> And this is the issue of conscience. We talked about conscience in that other passage that I read earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, and we tend to throw that term around, but we don't really think about its significance. Conscience is, in the words of another, your internal moral compass. God has given us our conscience for our good. Our conscience is like an equation. What you put in equals what comes out. Every time, the two sides will be equal. The believer is to fill their heart and mind with the truth of God. God. If you fill your hearts and minds with the world's truths and the world's thoughts, of course, that's what will come out. That's what it will equal. But for the believer, we fill our hearts and minds with the truth of God, and our conscience is informed by that. And so our conscience is then, because it's informed by biblical truth, it's then either able to convict us when we go against it or affirm us when we go with it. So our conscience is significant. In much of Paul's writings, he constantly affirms the importance of adhering to your conscience. In fact, to Timothy, his protege, he states that a good conscience is part of the aim of biblical instruction. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, The aim of our charge, or the aim of our instruction, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says that's the aim of our instruction, that people would love from a pure heart, that they'd have a good conscience and a sincere faith. This passage is no different. In this case, the teaching is that we must leave room for the conscience of others. A brother or sister who's exposed to someone who's practicing contrary to their conscience can be grieved. Chapter 14, verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. This grieving is akin to the idea of the stumbling block or hindrance from verse 13. The destruction that takes place in verse 20. The stumbling again in verse 20 and 21. He goes so far as to say that those who are convinced to act contrary to their conscience are themselves guilty of sin. In verse 23. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because he is not eating from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is how significant our conscience is for our lives as Christians. It is so significant that if we act contrary to our conscience, we may be sinning before the Lord. I like this quote on the significance of conscience as this issue of the person who who bends to bends their conscience and what that looks like. As this writer is thinking about that truth, he says, Paul has advice for the man who is weak in faith, the man with a scrupulous conscience. It may be that this may disobey or silence his scruples he may sometimes do something because everyone else is doing it he may do it because he does not wish to stand in a minority of one he may do it because he does not wish to be different he may do it because he does not wish to court ridicule or unpopularity Paul's answer is that if for any of these reasons a man defies his conscience he is guilty of sin If a man in his heart of hearts believes a thing to be wrong, if he cannot rid himself of the ineradicable feeling that is forbidden, that it is forbidden, then if he does it, for him it is sin. A neutral thing only becomes a right thing when it's done out of faith, out of the real reason conviction that it is right to do so. The only motive for doing anything is that a man believes it to be right. When a thing is done out of social convention, Out of fear of unpopularity to please men, then it is wrong. Now, we may get to the point of having our conscience seared because we go so long ignoring our conscience that it doesn't affect us any longer. And again, we may be so indulged in the world, in the world's thinking, in the world's philosophy, that our conscience is not being fueled by the right kinds of things. But in this case, we're talking about the one whose conscience is being filled with the right kinds of things, but he's being influenced by another brother or sister who just thinks differently about a matter of opinion and it's encouraging them to consent. <clears throat> Again, back to our text, we're sometimes so concerned with being right, with expressing our right views that we forget the damage that may be done to our brother and their conscience. We ought to be encouraging one another to cons- stay consistent with our conscience, while always seeking to build one another up in the faith so that our consciences are informed by the right things. That's part of our responsibility to one another. And so then the focus of our conversations is not just the rightness of our view, but it's truth. If there's some truth that we ought to consider. We may count it a victory when we've convinced someone to do things our way, or rather when they've consented to do things our way. But if we so grieved a brother or a sister, so impress our opinion on them as to move them to act contrary to their conscience, and if they actually do, then we're guilty of causing them to stumble into sin. Now obviously, Paul would say that causing someone to stumble into sin is not the goal. Our goal is not to be right. Our goal is not to enforce our view. Our goal is not to look down upon our brother or sister who believes contrary to our opinions. Our goal, our greater conviction, ought to be a commitment to edify and not to tear down. Look back at the passage. He puts it negatively this way in a number of verses. Verse 13, decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 15, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died, again, by grieving your brother. Verse 16, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, referring to your own opinion. Verse 20, do not forsake, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God, and it is wrong to make another stumble by what he eats. And verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble positively, he says it this way in verses 17 through 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. The body of Christ is not for eating and drinking or whatever opinion-related issue we're talking about so that we may feel free to tear one another down or cause one another to stumble just to be right, but rather for righteousness, peace, joy, and mutual upbuilding. Have your convictions, have your opinions in whatever areas you will. Be fully convinced in your own mind and that faith that you have that you're convinced of, as he says in verse 22, keep between yourself and God. In other words, have your convictions on your own time. Express your convictions if you're asked for it, but keep it between you and God. Enjoy it. When it comes to your brethren, it's not just about making sure that they have the right or wrong view on some opinion-related issue. What is wrong is for you to enforce your opinion on them, to grieve them, and to encourage them to act contrary to their conscience. What is right is for you to abstain from your Christian liberty for the sake of your brother. Again, verse 21, not to eat meat or drink wine, and in case that doesn't apply to you, or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. You may be free to do anything, but do not do it if it will cause your brother or sister to stumble, period. But I'm free to drink, so what? If a brother or sister is around who feels that drinking is wrong, just don't do it. And don't try to convince them to join in with you. But that brother or sister who doesn't watch those action movies clearly has the weaker faith. So what? Watch your action movies at home. Watch a Disney movie when they come over. Maybe not Disney these days, but some other kind of movie that's nicer. My reasoning for homeschool is more sound than their reasoning for sending their children to public school. Way to go patting yourself on the back for your superior reasoning. Keep your reasoning to yourself unless asked by your brother and encourage them in the choices that they've made. Those people who didn't get vaccine clearly don't care about others. Or, those people who got the vaccine are clearly afraid and lacking faith. Again, keep your opinion in your heart and your conviction before the Lord. Let your brother or sister be convinced in their own hearts before the Lord. Love them, encourage them, rejoice with them, build them up. That's your job. Do not despise them or cause them to stumble. If you want a verse to memorize from this passage, look again at verse 21. Verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It is good. When Arthur commented, that verse could be translated as beautiful. That word good. It is beautiful not to do anything to cause your brother or sister to stumble. In verse 22, Paul says, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. You're casting judgment on yourself you're adding judgment to yourself before the Lord by what you approve when you cause your brother or sister to stumble now again you may be thinking so then I can never have my way I can never voice or express my views and have my way in church come on (laughs) everyone else can have their way but I cannot yes that's what I'm saying that leads us to our third point be obliged to please one another be obliged to please one another. It's in chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. I'll read those now. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony, in such harmony, with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Again, be obliged to please one another. Yes, your responsibility, your obligation is to see that others have their way in the body of Christ. Again, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This harkens back to his earlier comments at the end of chapter 13. He says there, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe nothing but love. Be indebted to one another to love be obligated to love see that as your greatest liability when you walk through the walls of the church understanding the church as the people when you're gathered understand yourself to be indebted to the people around you to you see around you and the debt that you owe to each one you see around you is love paul says it this way in philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 do nothing do nothing do nothing From selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. An affirmation of this truth, and for those who view themselves as having taken the moral high road, again, Paul says in our text, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. One author said, those who pride themselves or being strong should display their spiritual maturity by doing everything they can to avoid bringing spiritual downfall to a brother or sister. Show the strength of your faith, the maturity of your faith, by building others up and not causing them to stumble, in other words. Again, does this mean that we're simply to be accommodating in every way to every whim of those who are weak? We already know this excludes sinful opinions. Those things that are clearly sinful are excluded from this conversation. We've touched on that already. Nor does it mean that those who are weak will always have their way. This admonition goes both ways, right? He says, again, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That goes both ways. So it's not just that the strong should be seeking to please his neighbor. It's that the weak should also be seeking to please their neighbor. That's our goal. That's our aim, not our rightness. Again, your rightness becomes wickedness if it tears down the faith of another. But we ought to be seeking to build up one another. This requires a willingness to compromise, to work with one another, to talk through differences, to look for a resolution that meets the needs of all, not just a few. A stubborn insistence to have something go one way, no matter who is insisting, is simply not love. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Mutual edification, again, chapter 14, verse 19, that's the goal. I like this quote here. The author says, what is this pleasing others that Paul enjoins then. It is a determined adjustment of our lifestyle to whatever will contribute to the spiritual good of another person. We are not to cater to the narrowest member of our fellowship or to Christians who have over the years hardened themselves in sub-biblical legalism or to allow ourselves to be dominated by disoriented person, disordered persons. But there are times when, for the sake of others, we forego a course of action to which we are perfectly entitled This is the example that we have from Jesus himself, verses 3 and 4. Christ did not seek to please himself, it says. Taking a a greater step back, that is what we've been saying throughout this whole Worldview series, that our goal as believers is seeking to bring glory to Jesus, to glorify him in every way through our lives. We do that as we live as he lived, as we walk as he walked. He did not seek to please himself. He did not come to please himself, but rather for the glory of God, the glory of his Father, He said that my food and drink is to do the will of him who sent me. He did not come to please himself. He came to please his father in heaven. And he came to be a blessing to us. That's the example that we have. That's what he's saying. The things that were written before time were written for our instruction. We have that as an example, as an illustration. To walk in his footsteps. That we through patience and comfort in the scripture might have hope. What is this hope that he's talking about there? What hope would we have? Well, as we look back at even, I mean, you can read through chapter 11 of Hebrews, right? And chapter 11 of Hebrews goes through a whole list of believers who had to wait for God's promises and some of them who never received them during their lifetime. But the admonition is that they will receive them. And likewise, as we're thinking about this truth, foregoing our liberties in favor of building up and being a blessing to others, We're reminded that God, just as sure as he has blessed the Lord Jesus, just as sure as he has honored the Lord Jesus for his faithfulness, he'll honor us. He'll see that we have what we need. He'll give us a reward. We'll share in the reward of the Lord Jesus as we walk in his steps. That's the point. So we don't have to worry about getting our own way today because we know that God will bless us. He ends this section with a prayer of benediction in verses five and six. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is his prayer for them, his pastoral prayer, his desire for them, that they may glorify the God and father of the Lord Jesus by living in such harmony with one another. That the God of endurance would help them to bear with one another that the God of encouragement would help them to find encouragement in seeking to please one another, and that in all of these things they would find harmony, to the point of this passage, the kind of harmony that is content with having their own opinions without feeling the need to express them just to be right, knowing that they would spare their brethren grief. The kind of harmony that sees the diversity of our opinions on such matters as a part of God's good design for his people and not just something that needs to be corrected. The kind of harmony that we feel obligated to pursue. Paul says in another passage in Ephesians. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Harmony in this way facilitates true worship. I'll leave you with this last quote. Paul speaks of many different obligations that believers ought to fulfill. So that they let no debt remain outstanding all debts must be paid. There is, however, one debt that is ongoing, the debt to love one another. He goes on, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love, a debt which you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in discharging, End quote. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word again, which is true. Your word which sanctifies us. We pray, God, that you would indeed sanctify us by your word. As this song says that we are about to sing, take this truth, take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.